Hi everyone, my name's Larry and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I didn't know this many people was alive at 9 o'clock in the morning. I took after my old sponsor and I don't do nothing and I don't start that till noon. So I'm not used to seeing this many people this early in the morning. But I want to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I really enjoyed the speaker last night and I'm looking forward to getting this over with so I can relax. Uh, my sobriety date's November the 7th, 1978. Thank you. My sponsor sitting right back there, his name's Bud. Hold your hand up, Bud. And my home group is the famous Shabley group on Sunday night. Got a lot of home group members here and I'm glad to see them. I see so many people in this room that's so dear to me. And this is just truly an honor to be here and get to share this morning. Uh, I'm going to tell a joke. Seems I didn't know if I was going to have time or not. This nun walked into a liquor store. She walked up to the bartender and she said, I want a fifth of whiskey. And he said, oh, sister, he said, I can't sell you that whiskey. I'm a good Catholic boy and I just can't sell a nun. A fifth of whiskey. And she said, but sir, you don't understand. It's for Mother Superior. She has constipation. And the only thing that will help her is that whiskey. She mixes it with something and it will help her constipation. He said, oh, well, if it's for Mother Superior, you can have this bottle of whiskey. So she took the bottle of whiskey and went on out. Later on that night, he closed up the shop and started home. He seen this nun. She was drunk on a skunk. She was all hooping and a hollering. And he went up to her and he said, sister, you lied to me. She said, what? And he said, you told me that was for Mother Superior's constipation. She said, it is. She's going to shit when she sees how drunk I am. (laughs) Well, that's what happened when I took a drink. Everybody around me felt the same way. Uh, I heard a guy say once, I'm not going to give you a drunk alone because you know how to drink. Hell, I never did know how to drink. That's why I'm here. I still don't know how to drink. Uh, but that's what I'm going to tell you is my story, because that's what was shared with me when I got here. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in 78, I thought I was unique. I thought nobody had done the things that I had done. And thank God for the people that got up behind these podiums and didn't lecture me. They told their story. And I could identify with them. Uh, I went to my first meeting and I heard a guy named Doug talk about talking to a vacuum cleaner. And he made me laugh. I hadn't laughed in a long time. And I went to another AA meeting and I heard a guy named Jim talk about drinking wine and crapping in his pants. And I thought, man, I believe I'm in the right place. (laughs) You know, I could identify with them guys. And uh, that's what I'm going to do is in a general way tell you what I was like, what happened to me and what what my life is like today. Before I do, I want to introduce my wife, my little Valentine that's been with me for almost 44 years. Barbara, would you stand up? All right. I always like to introduce her. Believe me, she's earned it. She has truly earned it. And uh, we're happy together today. And thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon with two programs that we to apply to our lives. We've got a good life today. I want to tell you that I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, down in the West End in Portland. 
I know some good old Portland people here. And uh, there was a bar on every corner. And it was a nice, exciting place to grow up. We lived uh, down in deep in the West End. And we lived in a, a Catholic neighborhood. There was large families. And they wound up being 13 of us. My dad took lessons from them. We wasn't Catholic. <laughs> and you know, I look back today, and I don't know how my dad kept us all uh, fed and clothed. You know, I, I I used to talk bad about my dad, and I look back today, and I don't know how he did it. My dad was an alcoholic, but he made sure we had plenty to eat and clothes on our back. But boy, when he drank, he was hell at our house. I remember my dad would come in on Friday night drunk, and he would chase my mother through the house, and I would hide under beds and in closets. And I'd lay under that bed, and I'd think, man, I'm never going to be like my dad. You know, and I also thought when I get big, I'm going to get my mother, and I'm going to get her away from all this chaos. And little did I know the same disease that my father had, I was to have also. And little did I know I was going to put my mother through a lot of terror. Because later on, my mother would stand at a living room window, and I hadn't been home for two or three days, and she'd hear them sirens, and she'd walk that floor wondering if I was alive or dead. And I didn't set out to do that. I had all these older brothers. There was nine boys in the family. And uh, I'm going to tell you, we got a house full of alcoholics. And we was the Adams family long before they come on television. And there was always something going on at our house. My dad built this house right by the flood wall. And I guess he knew what he was doing because that was our escape path. There was always a police car at our house. Somebody was always in trouble. Uh, we was drinking, raising heck. And I can remember as a kid growing up, I used to walk up Portland Avenue. It was a pretty rough avenue. And I'd go up Portland and, and go into the Red Shield Boys Club. I was just a young kid. And, and to go up Portland, I had to walk past 29th and Portland. And there was a bar at 29th and Portland that was the most fantastic place I'd ever seen in my life. I had four or five brothers in there. And I'm a little bit of kid. And I'd get up on my tiptoes and had a big oval window in the front. And I'd look through there and I'd see my brothers in there and the band was playing behind chicken wire and the tables was bolted to the floor and beer bottles was a-slinging and guns was going off and knives was coming out and I thought, damn, I can't wait till I can get in there. <laughs> you know, that ain't much of an ambition to have when you're about seven or eight years old. I had a lot of problems in school. I was the class clown. I found out if you can't get attention with good behavior, man, you can get all you want with bad behavior. And I was always in trouble at school because I was entertaining my classmates. Got into high school and it wasn't no different. And uh, I had a brother that was a jockey and he made a lot of money on the racetrack. And by the time I was 15 years old, I weighed less than 100 pounds. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go away and be a rich, famous jockey. And uh, I remember the guy I was working for, he said, i got to ask your dad. Can you imagine? He's going to ask my dad if he wanted to get rid of one of 13 kids. <laughs> And he went and asked my dad, my dad said, good luck, you know. And away I went to Boston, Massachusetts to seek my fame and fortune as a jockey. Now, if you've never heard about me, don't become too alarmed. Because <laughs> the only thing I was to ride was a beach up in Boston called Revere Beach. Because as soon as I got on the racetrack, I was 16 years old. I had no supervision. We're running the country, and I fell in with the people that drink and drug. And that's what I did. I looked up one day, my brother Norman come up to Boston to see me, and I thought, man, he loves me enough that he traveled a thousand miles to visit me. And I found out later he was hiding from the FBI. <laughs> he had gotten some serious trouble, and he was up there, and when he got up there, he was five years older than me, 
And he was kind of my hero. He was a great big stocky guy. And he loved to fight. And I kept him in training. You know, I'd start him and he'd finish him. But uh, my drinking really escalated at that time. I believe if I crossed over that invisible line they talk about, it was then. But he didn't last long. The FBI figured where he was. They brought him back to Louisville and I got homesick. And I thought, man, I think I'm going back home. You know, I wasn't riding nothing. I was cleaning a lot of stalls and stuff like that, exercising horses in the morning. And uh, But I come home, I thought, boy, I bet my mom and dad will be glad to see me. And I remember my dad coming in that night, and he said, Christ sakes, are you back again? You know, and I didn't like him before, and I didn't like him in. But my dad, had, my brothers had educated him. And he said, Larry, if you're going to stay here, you got a man. He said, you're not going to hang on them street corners all night and sleep all day. Well, I don't have to tell you all, that's exactly what I began to do. You know, I began to hang in them beer joints and started getting locked up for drunk and disorderly conduct. It wasn't long until my dad asked me to leave home. And I went to my brother's Ralph's house and I knocked on his door and I said, Ralph, dad run me off. Can I stay all night? Now, it's nice to have a big family. It takes a while to use them up. <laughs> and he said, well, sure, brother, come on in. And it took him a year to get me out of his house. I was like bubblegum. When I got in, I stuck. You know, Ralph drank real heavy, and that's what I began to do. I began to party and, and hit them joints and go to jail. And I walked back down at 33rd Northwestern Parkway. There's a library hill down there. I went to see some of my old friends, and I'm standing up on that library hill, and this pretty little girl, I knew her since she's about five years old, that lived in the neighborhood. I hadn't seen her for a couple of years, and she comes sashaying up the street. And she had grew up, and she had filled out, and she had what I wanted, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. <laughs> and we wound up sneaking around to see each other. Now, we had to sneak around because her daddy hated my guts. He used to tell Barbara, stay away from Adam's boy, he's trouble. Barbara should have listened to him, I'm going to tell you. But uh, we wound up getting married, and we was going to live happily ever after. You know, and my drinking's already rampaging. You know, it's getting worse. We got married. It wasn't long till we started having kids. We had our first baby right away. It wasn't long till we had our second baby. And I thought, man, we're going to have 13 till we found out what was causing it. We put a stop to it. Uh, but uh, our life was bad. You know, I'm getting in all kinds of trouble. My trouble's getting more serious. Barbara wound up pregnant with her third child, and I got into some real serious trouble. And I got sentenced to 10 years in the Kentucky State Reformatory. And I remember Barbara being in that courtroom. She was pregnant with our third child, and she began to cry. And my mother and daddy was in that courtroom, and they began to cry. And I remember looking back thinking, what the hell are you all crying for? I'm the one going. You know, I tell you that because I was 23 years old at this time, and I had lost the ability to care about another human being. Self-centered, that was me. You know, I only worried about Larry. And away I went to the penitentiary, and guess what? All my friends was there. They said, hey, Larry, what took you so long? And I thought, I wonder how they knew I was coming. You know, when you're doing what I'm doing, that's the only place you can wind up. I tell you about being there for a particular reason. I attended my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in there. I was walking the yard. If you hadn't been there, I'll save you a trip. They got a big old concrete path that goes all the way around the penitentiary. When you ain't got nothing to do, you walk the loop. And I'm walking the loop, and a buddy of mine come up. And he said, Larry, you want to go to a meeting tonight? Ah, oh, you ain't got a great social life in there. And I said, well, I may. What kind of meeting is it? He said, an AA meeting. I said, are you out of your mind? What would I want to go to an AA meeting for in the penitentiary? 
He said, well, I don't know. It might look good to the parole board. I said, where's the meeting at? <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you this morning, I don't care why you're here. It don't matter. Because I believe the seeds for Alcoholics Anonymous was being planted for me in that penitentiary. And I went to a meeting every Wednesday night, whether I needed it or not. <laughs> and I would go in and I'd sit and they'd bring speakers from the outside. And I'd sit and listen to those speakers tell their story. And the meeting would get over with and I'd start back to my dormitory. And I'd look at one of my buddies and I'd say, Man, that guy's had a rough life, ain't he? Now he went home to his wife and kids. And I went back and got locked up and I felt sorry for him. If that's not insanity, I don't know what is. Barbara went on aid for dependent children and she kept that family together. She had our third baby shortly after I went into the penitentiary. And she used to ride a bus up to see me uh, every Sunday. And we'd sit in that visiting room and I'd tell her, Honey, you wait till I get out of here and me, you, and them three kids are going to live happily ever after. And I made parole after a couple years and I went back home to Barbara and them three kids and we lived happily ever after for two weeks. In about two weeks, I told her, I said, honey, I'll be right back. I'm going to run up to the corner and see my friends. And I went up to my favorite beer joint. And he said, hey, Larry, we're glad you're back. Have a beer. And I picked that bottle of beer up. It was like I never left. And I began to do all the things that I was doing. I was on parole. And you ain't supposed to be in them beer joints when you're on parole. And uh, my parole officer called me up. And he said, Larry, I want to see you out my house. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. And I called my brother Norman up. You know, my hero. And I said, Norman, my pro officer wants me to come out of his house. I said, well, you go with me. He said, yeah, I'll go out there with you. And I said, well, bring your pistol. <laughs> and I said, if this guy reaches for me, you shoot him because I don't want to go back. <laughs> and we went out there, and this guy was a good guy, man. He only asked me to do one thing, stay out in beer joints. Well, he might as well ask me to cut off both my arms. I couldn't stay out in beer joints. I mean, my alcoholism was running rampage. And uh, I never went back for parole violation, but I did everything but beat on that door and beg them to take me back because my alcoholism's really progressive. I'm a painter by trade. If you've heard about drunken painters, that's what I was. And uh, I'm glad I can say was. Uh, I'm working over at uh, Fall City Brewery. My brother's a business agent for the painters. And uh, he come over to the brewery and he said, I got you a job. I said, man, I got the best job in the world. You know, you can't ask for a better job than to work in a brewery. Uh, I'd drop a bucket down, fill a five-gallon bucket up with beer, man, just dive in it. Uh, but he said, well, it's a maintenance job. And he said, it's regular and steady, and you won't have to worry about nothing. I said, I don't want it. He said, well, try it for two weeks, and if you like it, you can stay. If you don't, I'll bring you back over here. And I went down to a rubber company down in Rubbertown, American Synthetic Rubber, and I went to work down there. And I stayed for the next 19 years. And how I held that job, I don't know, because my alcoholism was really progressive. I got down on that job, and we had bought a new house and moved out into Shabley. Barbara went some money at the racetrack, and she used to hide that money. She didn't believe in banks, and I used to look for that money, and I never could find that money. And she bought the house that we was to live in for the next 28 years with that money. And, you know, it wasn't until we got to the fellowship, and I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and I heard her get a give a lead, and she used she told in that story where she used to hide that money, and I liked to pass it along to my fellow alcoholics. <laughs> she used to hide it in flower pots, so dump them flower pots out if you're looking for any money. I never did look in them flower pots, but she bought this house and we moved out there. And my kids is growing up, and 
they're excited making friends in school and Barbara's all excited with this new house and I'm on this new job and I don't know nobody. You know, and it wasn't long that people at this new job would say, Larry, would you like to ha- stop after work and have a drink? I'd say, yeah, it sounds great. And I'd go with them. We'd go to a little place out on King Run Road called the Carkin Bottle and we'd go in there and you know they would drink a beer or two beers and they'd say, I'll see you at work tomorrow. And I'd look at them i think, man, where are you all going? You know, I couldn't understand that. And they would leave and I'd think, well, I know what's wrong. They don't know how to drink. Never dawned on me it was me. But I began to change friends and I found people to drink just like me. And I would stay in them beer joints till all hours of the night. And you know what I began to do? I began to go home and do the very things that I seen my father do. I began to go home and terrorize my family and wreck the house. And my children began to hide under beds and in closets to get away from their drunken father. I was never going to be like my dad, and I was worse. You know, it was awful at our house. Uh, Barbara's talking about divorce, and I'm out running the streets. I'm going to work, but that's about all I'm doing. In 1974, I fell at work, and I had to be rushed to the hospital to have one of many back surgeries. And from 1974 to 1978, when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, alcohol and drugs completely consumed my life. It takes a lot of money, man, when you're doing drugs and you're drinking. You're trying to give the wife a little money. Try to keep the bill collectors off your back. I mean, it's a vicious cycle. And I always needed money. And I began to work out of the union hall on the weekends because I wasn't making enough money in this job. And my brother was a business agent. And my brother Norman called me up one night and he said, Larry, we're going out to Ford Motor Company and work this weekend. You want to work? He said, they need 25 painters. I said, Lord, yes, I need the money. He said, well, be ready at 5.30 in the morning. We'll pick you up. And at 5.30 on a Saturday morning, they honked the horn. And I went out and climbed in that car, and they had a bag of reefer laying on the front seat and a cooler full of vodka and orange juice, and they was smashed. And I looked at them. I thought, we're going to have a good time today. <laughs> and we went out to Ford Motor Company, and me and my brother and my nephew, and the first thing we did was separate and look for something to steal because I had a lot of larceny in my heart. And it wasn't long till that vodka and orange juice was gone. And I looked at my nephew and I said, I'm going home. He said, what's the matter, Uncle Aaron? I said, we ain't got nothing to drink, man. I can't stay here all day. He said, well, we can't get out of here. And I said, yeah, we can. And I, I observe things when I'm around someplace. And I noticed guards rode around on little golf carts. So I found me a little golf cart. <laughs> Just pushed the button. It started up. We drove it up to the gatehouse, parked it, told the guard in the gatehouse we had to get my nephew's car and go after some paint. He let us out. It's that simple. We went straight to a liquor store, and we got something to drink, and I looked at my nephew, and I said, I had about four brothers working there, or five that day, and I told my nephew, Donnie, I said, get a bottle of whiskey for every pocket you got. I said, we got to get back, because I know Norman's rampaging by now. And if you all know Norman, he was rampaging. And uh we got a bottle of whiskey for every pocket we had, and we went out and got in his car, parked, and went back through this gatehouse, and this guard snatched a bottle of whiskey out of my nephew's pocket, and we got belligerent with him. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do with you guys. I'm going to call my captain. But when he went to use the phone, we snatched up that bottle of whiskey he grabbed. We run out and jumped on our little golf cart. And away we went. And my nephew said, Uncle Larry, they're coming after us. And I looked back and there was two guards and they was on the golf cart. And their golf cart was faster than my golf cart. And my nephew said, we've got to do something or we're going to get caught. And I rounded this corner. When I did, I looked over by this building. And he said, shiniest fire engine I ever seen in my life. 
Now, I haven't drove one before, and I haven't drove one since, but I was drunk enough. And we pulled over to that fire engine, just my luck, it had a set of keys in it. And of course, you know, I liked a lot of attention, and I had to be the driver. And I got in the driver's seat, and I told my nephew, I said, we can't, we can't take off till we find out how to get the light and the siren go. And it wasn't long that we had that light a spinning, and that siren was a spinning, and we was a spinning. And away we went, and I remember my nephew waving by at them guards. I looked at my nephew and I said, you know, Donnie, it would be a shame to steal this fire engine and not let my brother see it. <laughs> and I said, hang on, we're going to take it back to where they're working. And this highway was just big enough to get this fire truck down. And we shot down through there with that light is spinning and that light is spinning and me and Donnie was spinning. And people was a-diving out of the way. And my nephew was hollering, run over them SBs, Uncle Larry, kill them. Had you stopped that fire engine that very moment and said, one of you guys is going to the penitentiary, I'd have shrugged my shoulders and figured it'd be me. By the grace of a loving and merciful God, I was to make it to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that nephew was going to spend the next 14 years in the penitentiary for something that happened due to alcohol and drugs later on. But we took it to where my brothers was, and they was real impressed. Their, their mouth fell open and their eyes got big. And every guard at the Ford Motor Company was impressed too because they all showed up. <laughs> and they was madder than heck. And we got to arguing with them and one of these guards got up in my face and he shoved me. And I told you my brother Norman done my battles. And when this guard shoved me, my brother Norman hit him upside the head. And we had one of the biggest free frauds you ever seen out there. I mean everybody was fighting. Now I used to tell this story in the cork and bottle and it went something like this. We whipped every guard at the Ford Motor Company. <laughs> My wife told me I'm a sensitive and, what's the other barber? Grandiose alcoholic. <laughs> you know that's probably true, I never believed that, but I was talking to my son and I had a wreck later on that night and I used to say I hit five trees, he told me it was only two. So I guess I am grandiose. But, uh, we got in that fight out there and like I said we whipped every guard at the Ford Motor Company. But after I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, y'all taught me about being truthful. I'm going to tell you what really happened out there. We got the shit beat out of us. <laughs> and I was the littlest and I got the worst, believe me. They mopped the floor up with me. And I remember they threw us out, me and my nephew and, and my brother Norman, and we said, we'll be back. We're going home and get our pistols and we'll show you how bad we are. But we got detained. We run into a beer joint. Now, I told you I'd been out since 5.30 that morning, what kind of day I had. I hadn't had enough. Uh, my nephew took me home, and I jumped in the old LTD station wagon he had and tried to catch him, and I wrecked that car. I hit trees, and I turned it over, and David, my son that's here tonight, he uh, he was the first person to arrive at the scene of that wreck, and he, he pulled me out of that wreck. And he said it had knocked the shoes off my feet, and I was spitting dirt wanting a cigarette. Now, David knew if he left me there, I was going to jail. So he got a buddy, and they took me home. And I don't remember this wreck. And I remember coming to the next morning in bed, and I had broken ribs. I'd been in that fight. I had a hinky on the side of my head as big as a watermelon. I weighed probably about 115 pounds, because all I'm eating is pickled weenies and pig feet and them bear joints. And I ain't going home, because all barbers feed me is cold shoulder and hot tongue, and I didn't like either one of them. (laughs) 
And I woke up this morning and I want to tell you, when I married Barbara, she didn't cuss, she didn't drink, she didn't smoke, she didn't gamble, she didn't know how to have any fun in her life. <laughs> but through the years, she changed. You know, I know now why she changed. She lived with a crazy man. But when I woke up that morning, she was on my chest. And she had that finger in my face and she was telling me all the things that I'd done. I said, oh, if I had a wreck like that, I'd be dead. And she took me over to the junkyard and I looked at that car and I looked at Barbara and I said, that's it. I'll never drink again. Thank God AA tells you to do it one day at a time. Man, never's a long time. I got drunk that night. <laughs> that was in 1977. I went into work the following Monday morning and everybody that drank and drunk, drug hung at the paint shop. And we're in the paint shop and the phone rang and it was a personnel director on my job. And he said, Larry, I want to see you over at the office. And I hung up the phone. They said, what do you think Bill wants with you? And I said, I don't know. I'm such a good employee. He probably wants to give me a raise. <laughs> and I went out and I went over to his office and he was looking out a window. And I told you what kind of physical shape I was in. And he turned around and looked at me and he said, my God, Larry, you look awful. I thought, man, if you just had the weekend I had, you wouldn't look too hot either. And he looked at me, and to my knowledge, he was the first person to ever call me an alcoholic. He said, Larry, I know what's wrong with you. And I said, really? And I said, what's that? And he said, you're an alcoholic, and I know a place that can help you. And it hurt my feelings. <laughs> and I cussed him and stomped out of his office, and I went back over to the paint shop, and all my buddies was over there. They said, what Bill want with you? And I said, you all will never believe what he called me. <laughs> They said, what's that, Larry? And I said, he said that I'm an alcoholic. They said, oh, he tells everybody that. Come on and have a drink. <laughs> I thought, yeah, he don't know nothing. I've never seen this guy take a drink. You can't trust anybody that didn't drink. <laughs> I left that man's office and I continued to drink for another year. And I could sit up here and tell you story after story after story. The last year of my drinking was a nightmare. A year after I left his office... I was out with my brother Norman on about a three or four day bender and I wound up overdosing on alcohol and drugs. And when I come to, I was in university hospital and I was strapped down on a gurney. They had straps on my legs and my waist and my shoulders and I'm sicker than a dog. They had a tube in every hole I had. And I'm laying on that gurney and I'm all sick and a woman walked up to me and I found out later she was a psychiatrist. And she said, Larry, we're going to put you upstairs before you hurt yourself or somebody. And I'm laying on that gurney and I thought, damn, she's going to lock me up. I knew what was upstairs in the university hospital. It's called the nut ward. Because my brothers, I used to visit them up there. <laughs> you know, they had DTs and all that stuff and they had them funny little coats on. And I thought, I better do something or I'm going to get put in a jackpot. So I began to con and manipulate like I'd done all my life. And I looked at that woman and I said, I'm going to do something about myself. And she said, do you really mean that, Larry? And I'm laying on that gurney strapped down, but I could get my swearing hand up. And I said, I swear to God, lady, if you'll let me out of here, I'm going to do something. And she bought my story, and she let me out of that hospital, and I did do something. I went to the first liquor store I could find and got me a drink. Because by now, alcohol was running my life. It had me by the throat and was squeezing the life out of me. I drank that weekend, and on November the 7th, 1978, I woke up like I had a thousand other mornings. And I went into work. And as I went in to go to the paint shop, I passed that personnel director's office. And I remember what he had told me in 1977, that I was an alcoholic, 
and he knew a place that could help me. And I went up and tried his door, and it was locked. And he had a side entrance, and I went around to the side, and it was real dark, and he wasn't in, and I sat on them steps, and I began to cry. I'm 38 years old, and I've been drinking since I was, a, I took my first drink when I, first drunk when I was 12 years old. And I sat on them steps, and I cried my heart out. I don't know why I was crying that morning, but I was at the jumping off place. I couldn't live with it, and I couldn't live without it. And Bill come in and found me sitting on them steps crying. And he took me in the office, and he said, what's the matter, Larry? And I said, Bill, you told me about a place that could help me. I said, where is it? And he said, LaGrange. I said, oh, no, man, I done been there. <laughs> he said, dummy, I ain't talking about a prison. I'm talking about a treatment center. And I knew absolutely nothing about a treatment center. And you know, here's a guy sitting on his steps crying, 38 years old. And as bad as I wanted help, you know what I told him? Well, I'll go tomorrow. He said, oh, no, pal, you're going right now. And he called Barbara up, and him and Barbara took me to a treatment center. And had I known what was in store for me, I'd jumped out of that car and run like hell. I'm so grateful to loving God I know today. Don't let me see in the future, because I'd have missed you people. I stayed 30 days in that treatment center, and the most important thing they did was they thoroughly introduced me to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got out of that treatment center, and I went home to a wife that I had drove crazy, and three teenage children. I didn't even know those teenagers. <laughs> and I will tell you what, I thought we was going to be the beaver family. God, was I in for a rude awakening. I set them all down at the kitchen table, and I said, things are going to be different. And my youngest daughter went, oh, no. And I went to a meeting that night. My first sponsor I got was named Dave. And, and I said, Dave, my family don't believe me. He said, hell, I don't believe you either. <laughs> he said, all we got to go on is your track record. He said, how many times you told your family you wasn't going to drink? I said, and he said, Larry, the greatest talk you'll ever make is the one you walk. He said, you need to walk in front of your family and let them see a change in you. And I'd like to tell you that we instantly done that, but that's not true. I helped court at the dining room table, and they wouldn't listen to me, and I'd have to pound on the table, and I'd throw temper fits, and I'd jump up and down and beat on that table on that counter so they'd listen to me. And uh, a guy in AA told me, he said, Larry, you know what's wrong with you? And I said, what? And he said, you got a little brat inside of you, and his name's Buster. And he said, Buster's running your life. You need to spank his ass and put him to bed. And I'm going to tell you, Buster will run my life today if I let him. You know, I keep him pretty well spanked and put away today. But uh, it was awful at our house. You know, our son David starts falling in the back door drunk and loaded on marijuana. And I thought, how can he do this to me as good a daddy as I've been? You know, and I had enough ego back then. I thought, well, I'll straighten his little butt out. Well, if there's anybody in here trying to straighten out one of your kids, good luck. Me and David wind up in a fist fight in the basement, and I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I'm wilder than a reindeer. And David left home and joined the Navy. Our two daughters left home and went to Texas to live with my sister, and that left me and Barbara. Now, you talk about two sorry people. We used to sit at the table and just stare at each other. All we ever talked about is what I'd done the night before, but thank God Barbara was going to Al-Anon. And I'm going to AA. And the first AA meeting I went to was the Shively group that I'm a member at now. And it was at 
St. Simon and Jude then. And I went into that meeting, and the first person I was to meet was Bob over there. And I'm sitting at a table, and Bob come up, and he said, Welcome to the Shafley group. And I thought, Whoopee. <laughs> and he started talking to me. He was trying to make me feel comfortable. And, and I'm sitting there, and I said, How long have you been sober? And he said, Sixteen years. And I about spit coffee on him. I thought, Sixteen years? And, you know, he got up and finally walked away, and I thought, that must be the biggest liar and alcoholic tonight. <laughs> you know, I couldn't visualize anybody staying sober that long. And, you know, the funny thing, when I had my 16th birthday, Bob celebrated his 32nd, and we celebrated it together. You know, that's a wild, wild, wild tale. Uh, but we began to go to meetings. Barbara had got an Al-Anon sponsor, and I hated her Al-Anon sponsor with a passion <laughs> because Barbara began to do funny things to me at home. I'd try and start an argument, and she'd say, well, you could be right. <laughs> I'd say, damn, what happened to her? <laughs> or she'd say, I'm sorry you feel that way. And she'd walk away, and I'd hear her muttering, quack, 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 water over her duck back. And I thought, man, I have got to get her away from that woman. You know, it was awful. And I used to hold my sobriety like a club right over her head. I'm not proud of this. But I had to kick her. When Barbara didn't do just what I wanted her to, I'd say, I'll get drunk. Well, Al-Anon changed that, too. Because I told her that one day, and she wheeled around and looked at me, and she said, who gives a shit? She said, your sobriety is your responsibility. I'll not take no credit for it, and I'll not take no blame for it. And I thought, Lord, i got to get her away from that woman. <laughs> now, the only one I hated worse than Barbara's sponsor was her sponsor's husband. His name was Louie. And Louie was the nastiest talking man I ever met in my life. He used a lot of four-letter words on me. And uh, Louie and Nancy was always trying to get us to go places. And I'd tell Barbara, I'd say, if that Louie calls, you tell him we ain't going. And Louie would call and Barbara would hand me the phone. <laughs> and I'd say, hi, Louie, what time you go pick us up? <laughs> I was scared of Louie. But we began to go places, you know, and thank God for the couples in Alcoholics Anonymous that got a hold of us. I remember people would invite us to their house. I remember Bob and Juanita invite me over to their house and I kept my hands in my pocket because I was scared I was going to steal something. You know? And I didn't even check their medicine cabinet. Uh, it was wild, man. You know, but thank God for the couples that got a hold of us and we began to go places. And I remember they invited me and Barbara to go with 50 couples out to a, a place and see a play on New Year's night. 50 AAs and Allen night. And we got dressed and we went out there and they had a play called Camelot. And man, I thought it was wonderful. And they had an intermission, and I went outside to smoke a cigarette, and an old buddy of mine from Portland was there. He said, Larry, I didn't know you liked this kind of stuff. I said, hell, I didn't either. <laughs> you know, they didn't put on Camelot in the places I hung out at. And uh, it's only been through Alcoholics Anonymous that I've got to experience things like that. I've got to go places and do things and see things. And I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'd like to tell you that I was instantly a shining example, and I worked them steps, and I got into that big book, but I didn't. You know, I had an old trench coat when I got here, and I'd huddle it around me, and I'd get back in a corner, and they nicknamed me Columbo. <laughs> and I defy you to talk to me. 
you know, and a guy come up to me one day and he said, Larry, why don't you take that sign off from you? And I looked down and see if I had a sign on me. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you got a big neon sign that says, keep away from me. See, I scared you people. Because I knew when you found out what I was really about, you was going to tell me to leave. And you didn't. You told me to keep coming back. And I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got me a token. I was the most surprised guy besides Barbara in that room to get the token. You know, and she's going to Al-Anon and we're going places. And I got that token, and it was the happiest moment of my life. And I remember after I got that token, I looked down at it, and I thought, there's something wrong with me. And I went to my sponsor, Dave, and I said, Dave, there's something wrong with me. Don't ever tell your sponsor that. <laughs> he said, Larry, there's a whole lot wrong with you. <laughs> and he said, what's the matter? And I said, man, I see people around Alcoholics Anonymous that's got something I've never touched. I said, they're happy and serene. And I said, inside of me, I feel like a bowl of jelly. He said, you want more? And I said, yeah. He said, you got to do more. And I said, like what? And he said, like them steps and that big book. And with Dave's help, we picked up the big book and we began to read. And he began to help me through the steps. And I did an inventory. He told me to do an inventory. I said, I done one in treatment. He said, you've done one around AA too, but it don't count. He said, you need to take a look at you. And I sat down, I was 40 years old, and I took paper and a pen, and for the first time in my life, I looked at this immature, spoiled little brat that had never grew up, that had blamed everybody and everything for his misery. Never once did I look at my side of anything. And I'm going to tell you, when you're 40 years old, that's a pretty bleak picture to look at. An immature, spoiled little brat. And I took it to the park with my sponsor, I got it through, and I said, Dave, I'm through with my four steps. And he said, you need to read it to somebody, preferably me. And I read my fifth step to my sponsor sitting in Iroquois Park. And it felt like a thousand pounds went off my shoulder. For the first time in my entire life, I let another human being see me completely. I took my false face on that I had put on. I took it off that I had put on when I was 12 years old on the street corner. And I was whatever you wanted me to be. And for the first time in my life, I was who I really was. And I remember Dave said, now you can begin to fill your insides with what Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. And boy, what a, what a feeling. I got involved in this program. I got so involved in this program, I wanted to give it to the world. You know, I thought everybody should be in AA. And I used to get in my car, and I used to ride downtown Louisville. And there was an old abandoned hospital down there, old Norton's Hospital. And them winos would crawl in them bushes at nighttime. And I'd drag them out and take them to JDAC. <laughs> now, they didn't want to go to JDAC, and JDAC didn't want them. And they'd call my sponsor up, and he'd say, Ah, oh, leave him alone. He's on his white horse. <laughs> it got so bad that when my old car would go down Oak Street, them little winos would take off running. <laughs> you know, they just wanted to drink wine. They didn't want to go there. <laughs> and I fell off my white horse, you know. And I realized, you know, it's a program for who wants it, not who needs it. And, and I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous every phase of it. And I had a lot of damage I had to undo. You know, my first sponsor kind of quit going around the program, and I wound up asking Jack S. to be my sponsor, Jack Solomon. A lot of y'all knew Jack. He's, he's dead today. And Jack taught me a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, he taught me about having a home group and being responsible in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I, I had me a home group, the Shively group, and 
I called him up, or he called me up one Sunday night. I didn't go to the meeting. I went to the bingo with my wife. She said, ah, you can miss your home group and go to bingo. I said, all right. That's hard to talk it into. And I got home, the phone rang, and it was Jack. He said, are you sick? I said, no. He said, you been out of town? I said, no. He said, where was you tonight? And I kind of mumbled in the phone. I said, been to bingo. He said, do what? And I said, I went to the bingo, and man, I got a ripping that you'll never believe. He said, you be at your home group on Sunday night unless you're sick in bed or dead or out of town. He said, people expect to see you at your home group, and you got a responsibility to your home group to be there and to be active in your home group. Don't just sign your name to a piece of paper, get involved in your home group. And believe me, I very seldom miss my home group. I'm a faithful member of my home group. And and I started getting involved in AA. I got me a bunch of people to sponsor. And you talking about the blind leading the blind. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's a guy in here today named Ron. And me and Ron used to run. I'm telling you, we was two idiots running together. Uh, it was awful. Uh, I just kept going to meetings. That's all I can tell you. The most important thing that I did is I come to these meetings. And there was a lot of nights early in my sobriety that I didn't know when I left that door if I was going to a meeting or get drunk. But somehow, I made it to a meeting or I run into one of you people. And I made another day. And life has been good to me since I've been a member of this program. I've got to go places and see things and meet people that I never dreamed of. In my wildest dream, I'd have never dreamed some of the things that's happened to me. I found a God of my understanding in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was scared to death of God when I got here. And I got a loving God that I know loves me. Because he brought me to this fellowship. And I know that if you're sitting here this morning, he loves you too. And I believe that God gave me a gift. And I believe that if somebody gives you a gift and you unwrap it, you say, my, isn't that perfect? And you take that gift, you put it away in a drawer. That gift don't mean much to you. But if you open that gift up and you say, oh, isn't that beautiful? And you share that gift with everybody you come in contact with, that gift becomes priceless. And that's the gift that God gave me, sobriety. And the more I share that gift, the more precious it becomes to me. You know? And I thank God every night for two gifts. The gift of life and the gift of sobriety. And I don't ask for a lot of things from God today because I don't think that I need to ask for a lot of things. Because with them two things, I've got everything I need. God has blessed me abundantly. I've been, uh, you know, I, I wanted our kids to come back home. We wanted to have a relationship with our kids. I don't know what time it is, but I'm not done yet. Uh, <laughs> I used to tell my sponsor, I wish my kids would come home. He said, be careful what you pray for. And our youngest daughter, Sherry, come home first. And we began to have a relationship with her. And she began to go to some meetings with us. And uh, she got a job and was living with me and Barbara. She come in all excited one day and she said, Dad, I got some tickets to the ballet. I thought, ballet? You know, and she said, will you and Mom go? And I said, yeah, we'll go because we wanted to be with her. And we went down to the Center for the Arts. And she had us some seats about four rows back in the middle. And it was beautiful down there. We was all dressed up. I had on a suit. Barbara was dressed up. And Sherry was sitting in between us. And this woman come out on the stage before the ballet started. And she said, she was going to introduce some special guests they had. And she said, hi, my name's Kathy. And I hollered, hi, Kathy. (laughs) 
I was the only one that hollered, I Kathy. And my daughter tried to crawl under the seat. She said, Dad, you can't take you nowhere Alcoholics Anonymous has run you. And we began to have a relationship with her, and she's a wonderful child today. You know, she lives in Louisville, and, and she's married today, and me and Barbara just love her to death. She's spars us right. She's called us since we got here just to make sure we got here all right. My oldest daughter, she moved to Texas and stayed there. My oldest daughter hated my guts. Hated my guts. She wouldn't have spit on me if I was on fire when she left the house. Because she had seen most of my alcoholism. And you know, I'd tell my sponsor, I'd say, man, she ain't never going to forgive me. And he said, yes, she will. And I'd say, when? And he'd say, in God's time. Everything happens in God's time. And you know, my daughter got involved in a, some programs down in Texas, and she'd come back for a visit, and she'd get ready to go home, and I'd hug her, and it was like hugging a stone. And I'd be so disappointed. And he'd tell me it'll happen in God's time. And slowly but surely, me and her began to mend fences. And she'd come home one time, and, and I went to hug her, and it was like I was hugging her for the first time in my life. And me and her began to have a relationship. And we've got a good relationship today. It's long distance. But she's got two grandbabies, and she left her husband one time, and I wanted to move closer to Louisville, and she moved in with me. <laughs> with a four-year-old and a six-year-old, that was quite an experience. I used to watch a four-year-old while her and Barbara was working part-time and the other one would go to school and me and a four-year-old would spend the day together. And I told my sponsor, I said, me and that four-year-old get along good. He said, y'all are too. <laughs> you just can't get ahead of them sponsors, can you? Uh, but me and that little fella, you know, we'd get everybody off and we'd go to the movie and get one of them kids' movies and we'd come home and I had a big old kingside bed with a bunch of pillows and I'd fluff them pillows up and I'd make him a snack We'd get up in that bed and we'd pop that little movie in. He'd get right here in the crook of my arm. And we'd watch that movie. And he'd reach over and kiss me on the cheek. He'd say, I love you, Paul Paul. You can have my drink today. Them two little fellas have never seen their grandfather run their grandmother out of the house in a drunken drink. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, they think I can hang the moon and I don't want them to think any different. Our son David, David was like watching a rerun of me. You know, he come in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. He got a token. I ain't going to tell his story, but it was a nightmare. And uh, I'd go to my sponsor and I'd whine. He'd say, paybacks are hell, ain't they? <laughs> it was awful watching David. You know, he was in and out of jail. He was in the penitentiary. He did everything that I did. And all I could do was pray for my son. Because I knew the same God that loved me and got me here loved my son as much as he did me. And I would pray for David. And Barbara would pray for David. And a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous prayed for David. And we prayed him right back into these doors. And David's back into Alcoholics Anonymous. And this past November, he gave me my 25-year medallion. And I got to give him his six-year medallion. Hold your hand up, Dave. And me and David have a good time together. You know, David's not just my son today. He's one of my best friends. We fish together. We bet racehorses and we laugh and we cut up and we talk on the phone. And uh, I never dreamed that I could have that kind of relationship with my children. And I owe it to you people and the God of my understanding. I've been fortunate to see my brothers come into this program. 
you know, and my brother Norman made it to this program. And he was sober three years and he got cancer. And I used to sit with him in a hospital. And we'd be sitting in that hospital and I'd say, what do you want to do tonight, Norman? He'd say, why don't you read to me from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we talked about God. We talked about love. We talked about death. And one night he laughed about two o'clock in the morning. He kind of laughed out. And I said, what's the matter, brother? And he said, I'm just thinking of AA. I said, what about him? He said, they're crazy. He said, they laugh when they're supposed to cry. And they cry when they're supposed to laugh. He said, but boy, I'm glad I met him. And my brother died in that hospital. And my world come crashing in. I wanted to lay on my couch and feel sorry for myself. But I'm going to tell you, the guys that I sponsored, they would call me up and say, where are we going tonight? It's hard to tell them you're going to stay home and feel sorry for yourself while they go to a meeting. And they got me off that couch at a time that I needed somebody. And my sponsor told me to hit my knees and ask God to give me the strength to get through that. And I did, and God answered my prayer. He sent me guys to sponsor just like Norman. You know, I used to get the craziest ones and still do. And I told Barbara one time, I said, man, how come I get the crazy ones? She said, birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> and I guess that's true. But I wouldn't trade it for nothing. And I want to tell you that if you're new in sobriety, if I look back today, the greatest time I had in sobriety was when I knew absolutely nothing. Now, I don't know much today, but I, I went whichever way the wind blew. And I had a ball in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, whatever was going on, I was part of it. And I laughed. I never laughed so much in my life when I got to this program. And I had a ball. And I still have a good time. Uh, my sponsor, Jack, I've had a lot of operations. and Guys in Alcoholics Anonymous has given me blood. And uh, I had to have some more surgery. And my sponsor, Jack, he said, I'm going to give you some blood. I said, oh, Jack, you're too old. <laughs> He said, I want you to finally have some royal blood in your family. <laughs> and Jack went up and gave me a unit of blood. And Later on, Jack got sick and he got cancer. And I used to take him for chemotherapy. And they was drawing blood out one day. And I looked at it and I said, damn, Jack, you got blue blood. He said, I've been trying to tell you that for years. <laughs> now, here's a guy that slept in a cardboard box out by Churchill Downs at the racetrack. And he stayed around alcoholics so much, he thought he was royal till he had royal blood. You know, it can only happen in alcoholics and But Jack, give me that blood, and I'm grateful. He was a good sponsor. And when Jack got sick, he said, Larry, you got to get you another sponsor. And I didn't try and replace Jack, because I couldn't replace Jack. But I got me a dandy little sponsor in Bud. And we had the time of our life. You know, we rode down here together with this girl and my wife, and we, we just had a good time. You know, and we insist on having a good time. But I'm serious about staying sober. You know, I had a lot of amends to make when I got to this program. And my sponsor called me up one night and he said, you want to go to a meeting tonight? And I said, I can't. He said, what's the matter? And I said, I got to go see my old man. He's in the hospital. That's all I ever called him, my old man. He said, what's the matter? Don't you want to go? And I said, not particularly. He said, why not? And I said, man, he ain't ever done nothing for me but cause me grief. He said, Larry, how can you want your children to forgive you and you can't forgive your daddy. He said, how in the world can you say the Lord's Prayer and ask God to forgive you your trespasses and you can't forgive your daddy? He said, you need to think about that. And I did think about it. And I went to that hospital and my daddy 
was 80 some odd years old. And I looked at him laying in that bed with that white hair. And I knew I didn't hate my dad. I hated the things he done. But I did them too. And I know what caused him to do. And I was in my 40s. And I sat down on the bed. And for the first time I can ever remember. I took my father's hand. And I said, Dad, I just want you to know that I love you. And I see the tear come out on his cheek. And he said, I love you too, son. We never told each other that. Friends, that's alcoholism. It divides fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters. And I was able to make amends to my dad. And he lived to be 93 years old. And I never went to see my daddy after that. That I didn't kiss him on the cheek and tell him I love him. And I'm so grateful that you people taught me to do that. After my dad died, we didn't know what to do with my mom. She was living in an apartment and she was having a hard time. And you remember when I said when I was under that bed, I said I was going to take care of my mother? Well, I got the opportunity. God seen to that. And we moved my mother into our house for two years and she like drove me crazy. <laughs> She's the fastest thing I've ever been around. She like drove Barbara crazy too. Uh, but it was, it was something else. And my mother lived to be 98 years old. She was quite a woman. And you know, thank God that I got the opportunity for her to see me sober a long time in this program. And, and you know, things was alright. And I know today that my mom and dad were good people. And I realized that from doing an inventory and looking back. And they did the very best they can do. And maybe you got somebody in your life that you're still carrying their resentment around. I want to urge you to get rid of that resentment. Because man, I'm glad my dad didn't die before I got rid of it. That's a lot of guilt to carry around. And you people taught me how to get rid of that stuff. I'm not the person I want to be yet. But I'm not the person I was when I come here. And you know, it's not important what you think of me. It's important when I look in that mirror what I think of myself. And it's important what the God of my understanding thinks of me. And that's the only thing that I worry about. is trying to do God's will. And I pray every night for the knowledge of God's will for me. And the power to carry that out. And you know, sometimes I'm successful at it. And sometimes I'm a thousand miles away from it. But I know if I stay close to you people and do what I'm supposed to do, that my life will keep getting better and better and better. I'm going to close for now. And I want to thank you all for, I want to thank Jeff for calling and asking me to come down here. I was flabbergasted. I said, Jeff, I've done talk to one state. He said, we're well, going to talk at another. And, and I'm, I'm grateful. It's been a, real, real good trip to see so many friends and, and feel the love that I feel here this morning. And you know, if you can't feel love in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon, man, you're in trouble because it's right here. And you can feel it and you can see it and it's in every room that you walk into. When I walked out of that treatment center, my greatest fear was what am I going to tell my friends when they want me to have a drink? And God give me this poem that I always close with and it's called Which Place? And maybe you're having a tough day and you'll remember this poem. It's called Which Place? It said, I dreamed one night I passed away and left this world behind. I started down that lonely trail some of my friends to find. I came to a signboard on the trail the directions it did tell. Keep right to heaven, turn left to hell. I hadn't been too good on earth, just a hopeless boozing wreck. I knew there at the crossroads the path I'd have to take. I started down the rocky path that leads to Satan's place. 
I shook within, not knowing what I'd have to face. Oh, Satan met me at the gate. What's your name, my friend? I'm just sober Sam that came to a bad end. He glanced through the yellow files. You made a mistake, I fear. You're listed as an alcoholic. We don't want you here. I said, I'm looking for my friends. And a smile stole over his face. If your friends are alcoholics, is there any other place? So I went back the way I came to the crossroads I did see. Then I turned right to heaven, as happy as could be. St. Pete smiled and said, come in. For you, I have a birth. You are an alcoholic. You've had a hell on earth. I saw old Bud Pete Bill and a friend called Bell. And brother, I was tickled because I thought they'd gone to hell. So brothers, I'll take warning. Learn something from my trip. You've got a place in heaven if you try hard not to slip. If someone tempts you with a drink when you're not feeling well, just tell them you're going to heaven and they can go to hell. Thank you all. God bless you.